You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Advanced fee scams run by Elon Musk impersonators use rescued boys' soccer team as fishbait. Bancor wallets robbed of cryptocurrencies. Palestinian police have been spearfished. The Black Tech Espionage Group is using stolen certificates to sign malware. Apple's upgrades are out. One privacy enhancement has a workaround. Microsoft is in the process of patching. And another fitness app overshares. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, July 10th, 2018. If you've been following the saga of the boys trapped in a cave in Thailand, you'll be happy to know that they're now all reported to be out and safe. A happy ending, saddened by the accidental death of a volunteer diver who worked on the rescue. You'll also no doubt be aware that Elon Musk offered the use of a mini-sub to get the boys out. The sub was not in the end necessary, but of course the story has drawn scammers. The usual impersonators have shown up on social media claiming to be Elon Musk and offering, in the midst of updates on the mini-sub, a fortune in cryptocurrency to those who play ball. It's the usual tired advanced fee scam. If you incautiously navigate over to the scammer's webpage, you'll learn that all you have to do is send between 0.1 and 5 Bitcoin in order to receive from 1 to 50 Bitcoin back. If you find yourself tempted, lie down until the temptation goes away. A wallet operated by Bancor, a cryptocurrency exchange that raised $150 million in a 2017 ICO, has been compromised. Thieves are said to have made off with $10 million in Bancor's own BNT, $12.5 million in Ether, and a million dollars in Pundi X's NPXS. Bancor has frozen BNT, but says it can't do much about the Ether or NPXS. A spearfishing campaign against Palestinian law enforcement officials is reported to be underway. Its use of micropsia malware and its development in Delphi leads security company Checkpoint to suspect that it's the work of the same group Cisco's Talos Labs and Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 found engaging in a similar campaign last year. Checkpoint speculates that the group may be affiliated with Hamas. 
Researchers at security firm ESET have found an espionage group, Black Tech, using certificates stolen from Taiwanese firms D-Link and changing information technology to sign plead backdoor malware. Black Tech has been most active against East Asian targets. ESET assesses their work as sophisticated, a cut above the usual. Apple issued security fixes and updates for many of its products yesterday. The patches and upgrades affect macOS, watchOS, tvOS, Safari, iTunes for Windows, iCloud for Windows, and iOS. The iOS upgrade has attracted considerable attention. Among other things, it offers USB restricted mode, which disables an iPhone or iPad lightning port beginning one hour after the device was last locked. USB restricted mode prevents the port from transferring data until the device is properly unlocked. Beyond its obvious value in lowering the risk of losing sensitive data should an iPhone or iPad be lost or stolen, the mode is particularly attractive to people who don't want police or other authorities rummaging their devices. A workaround has already been found, however. Researchers at security firm Elcomsoft found that if the police act quickly enough, they can prevent USB restricted mode from kicking in. If they connect an iPhone they've seized to a compatible USB accessory within that one-hour window, the phone won't enter USB restricted mode. Where can you get such a compatible accessory? As observers like Graham Cluley pointed out with customary cheerfulness, Apple itself will sell it to you. A lightning to USB camera adapter can be yours, officer, for the low, low price of $39. The FSISAC, that's the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center, recently teamed up with Deloitte to survey cybersecurity professionals in financial services. We'll hear first from John Carlson from the FSISAC, and he'll be joined by Julie Bernard from Deloitte. Well, the survey actually was developed uh, by Deloitte. We worked in partnership with Julie Bernard and her team at Deloitte. We've had a long-standing relationship with Deloitte in terms of working with our members to um, benchmark and understand how the changing cyber threat environment uh, is evolving and what sort of strategies are top of mind for chief information security officers. This particular benchmark fills a bit of a gap. Many of the programs already assess themselves on a NIST cybersecurity framework basis. We actually did not focus that many questions on the NIST CSF. We focused more on the inputs and the orchestration of their programs and the profile of the companies themselves so that you actually could look at peers. So if you are a um, multinational institution, whether you're a bank or an insurance company, you may have some commonalities. If you have assets under management over a trillion dollars, or if your revenue is over, say, $2 billion, how do you look compared to the rest? Things that may drive security spend beyond what we hear in some um, industry news around security spend as a percentage of IT spend. I see. So sort of clustering like groups together uh, so that uh, the data is more relevant for folks within those groups. Well, what were some of the key findings there? It's still a little bit early, I think, in our in our survey process. Um, this is a bit of a linear study. However, what we did found 
some things kind of surprised us a little bit, and some other things didn't quite. One of the surprises was how you are actually orchestrated doesn't matter that much, meaning whether you have a centralized program or a decentralized program, to a certain extent, how much you spend does not necessarily equate to a maturity score on NIST. What wasn't exactly surprising was um, as looked at a couple of different denominators um, that smaller companies, for example, tend to spend a bit more on a per person basis than larger companies. Mm. And that to me kind of makes sense because there's not as many people to amortize share costs if you're with a smaller company. John, I think um, the financial services side of things uh, certainly gets a lot of attention for uh, the amount of regulation that it has. And I think because of that, it is looked to as, uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, as generally being organizations that are setting the standard, that, that have their, you know, for lack of a better word, to have their stuff together. Um, does this survey reflect that? And, and, and if so, how does that uh, allow the financial services side to be an example to folks uh, in other industries who are looking at their own cybersecurity posture? Well, yeah, I think it does, because the survey, to my mind, was really helpful in terms of teasing out, I think, probably something that has been evolving over some time, but the survey, I think, uh, served a footstomp in terms of uh, underscoring the importance of chief information security officers to be more strategic, to not only focus on the day-to-day operational issues of defending networks, of protecting information, of implementing controls, but also helping the company think about how it's going to defend itself in the future and how to integrate the security controls into the full suite of products and services uh, and efforts to educate their customers on how to defend themselves against these types of cyber attacks. Uh, I thought that was one of the key findings uh, from the study in terms of thinking more strategically Uh, in addition to all the good work and the hard work that's done on a day-to-day basis to to defend networks and protect information and customers. That was John Carlson from the FSISAC. He was joined by Julie Bernard from Deloitte. You can find their report, The State of Cybersecurity at Financial Institutions. That's on the Deloitte website. Today is, of course, Microsoft's Patch Tuesday. Updates are issuing from Redmond now as we record this show. Keep an eye on Microsoft's Security Tech Center for the fixes as they roll out. The Polar Flow Fitness app, popular among soldiers, spooks, and other professionally devoted to staying fit in odd corners of the earth, may be oversharing. According to researchers at the investigative shop Bellingcat and the Netherlands news outfit De Correspondent, what's at issue is Polar Flow's Explore feature, which lets users find new routes and activities near them that other users have shared. The researchers looked at sensitive locations and say they were able to identify 6,460 individuals who were busily keeping themselves fit. They were able to find heart rates, routes, dates, times, duration, and pace of exercises. That's not likely to be directly useful to a hostile intelligence service, although one hesitates to rule out creative possibilities entirely, but it does enable someone to gather a good indication of whether a particular installation is active, how many people, roughly speaking, are there, the routes they tend to follow, and, of course, the geolocation of the fitness buff's quarters. 
patterns of activity reveal or at least confirm the locations of sensitive sites, and because people tend to turn the tracker off when they get home, the residences of the users. Minimally, the app would seem to have some potential as a doxing or harassment tool. One of the Bellingcat researchers explained, quote, Tracing all of this information is very simple through the site. Find a military base, select an exercise published there to identify the attached profile, and see where else this person has exercised. As people tend to turn their fitness trackers on or off when leaving or entering their homes, they unwittingly mark their houses on the map, end quote. Polar, the manufacturer of the app, points out that it was not breached, but it also wants to offer better privacy, and so it's temporarily suspended the Explore API until it comes up with some better approaches. The episode is reminiscent of one from last year when fitness app Strava's similar heat map exhibited oversharing. So, if you must exercise, consider OPSEC. And doesn't all that self-inspection smell faintly, at least, of narcissism? Here's an OPSEC tip from an unexpected source. Robert Maynard Hutchins, the long-serving mid-20th century president of the University of Chicago, is famous for having said, as he was de-emphasizing athletics and taking his university out of the Big Ten Conference, quote, When I feel like exercising, I just lie down until the feeling goes away, end quote. So how about it, you rangers, you seals, you SAS types, you spetsnaz? Take a tip from the great bookie himself and lie down. Maybe read some of the classics like Epictetus. No, seriously. Do keep running and enjoy the parkours. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Um, I saw an interesting article come back on Microsoft's research blog, uh, and they were uh, sort of celebrating that the second homomorphic encryption standardization workshop had delivered the goods. What are these standards we're talking about here, and, and why is uh, homomorphic encryption uh, something that we should be uh, happy about? Fully homomorphic encryption was one of these things that for a long time was uh, kind of a pipe dream of cryptographers. And uh, only relatively recently, uh, less than 10 years ago, where the first proposals for fully homomorphic encryption came out. And what's been amazing since then is how quickly the idea of fully homomorphic encryption has gone from uh, being something that was completely infeasible, uh, namely because it was very inefficient, to something that is still very uh, slow, very inefficient, but, but has now been implemented, has now been used for several toy projects, and like you mentioned, has now even been uh, standardized by a group of researchers at Microsoft and other institutions. So for those who, who don't know, uh, fully homomorphic encryption is a technology that allows computation to be done on encrypted data. Uh, essentially, that means that somebody can encrypt some data, send it to somebody else, and that second party can then process the data without even seeing it, without learning anything about it, and then send it back to the first party who can decrypt and get the result. So it's really a fabulous idea. It would have a lot of applications. And um, the standardization workshop that you mentioned was trying to develop a set of standard schemes and security parameters for these fully homomorphic encryption, uh, encryption schemes. Now, is this a matter of, of the, the algorithms or, or the, 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 um, the underlying technology improving over time? I mean, I, I remember you know, when I was a kid and, and the first Rubik's Cubes came out, there were solutions published. But in the decades since then, those solutions have gotten more efficient. And, you know, you see people solving Rubik's Cubes practically instantaneously these days. Is, is, is it a similar mm -hmm. sort of march of progress where over time people come up with clever ways to, to have this be more practical? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the initial uh, ideas, like I said, were, were relatively, were, were extremely slow. Uh, but then people built on them. People came up with all kinds of different improvements, uh, different underlying assumptions they could use to build schemes, uh, different ways of optimizing them, uh, better ways of implementing them, uh, and have really been able to improve the performance by several orders of magnitude. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to be seeing widespread application of a fully homomorphic encryption anytime soon. Uh, like I said, it's still relatively slow. It's still unclear what kind of the uh, killer application for this will be, where that kind of a slowdown is, is going to be acceptable. Um, and also, this uh, standardization workshop, it's not clear that it has any force, per se. Uh, it was done, like I said, by Microsoft and uh, several academic researchers. It wasn't done by a traditional standardization uh, body or uh, organization like NIST or, uh, or one of the IEEE organizations. And so they really just put it out there uh, kind of as a benchmark for people to follow but we'll see whether anybody ends up uh, adopting it. So take me through, what are the advantages of having these sort of standardization drafts out there? Well, the one thing that's very helpful is that it gives people, like I said, a, a, a benchmark. It gives them something to uh, base further improvements on. Uh, it tells people what the current best schemes are. So it gives people a target if they want to look for further improvements. And it also uh, spent a fair bit of time coming up with security estimates for the existing schemes. So this basically means looking at what the best known attacks are on the existing schemes. And again, that just provides uh, some kind of a common benchmark for people if they're looking to develop improvements on those attacks. All right. Well, it's interesting stuff as always. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.